I'd like you to please turn your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Jonah. We're going to begin in chapter 1. Jonah chapter 1. If you don't know where that's at, God put a table of contents in the front of your Bibles to <laughs> find that book. Otherwise, if you know where the New Testament is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, you get to Matthew and you go to the left, about eight books into the Old Testament, and you'll find Jonah there. We will be familiar with Jonah in the, na- in the next few weeks as we go through this study. We are beginning a series on this famous story, immortalized on flannel graph boards in every children's ministry classroom in Christian churches throughout the world. It's a, it's a good book. It's a timeless scene in the beginning, though. From ancient times, and even today, when you go to a harbor, a, a port, there are some unmistakable signs and smells and feelings in your senses when you are near a harbor. It's that taste in the back of your throat and in your nose of sea salt as it hangs in that wet harbor air. It's unmistakable when you see seabirds hovering over fishing boats begging the deckhands to throw their leftover bait overboard. And, and there's always that, that smell of fresh ocean, ocean air, but in port areas and harbors, it's the fresh smell of ocean air mixed with that putrid smell of decomposing sea life on the docks. It's the sound of creaking shipboards in the lines, the ropes that hold those ships to wooden docks. You just hear it in your mind. And then you feel that determined movement of dock workers and fishermen and passengers as they lift cargo in the day's catch and sails and luggage onto and off of floating vessels. You, you, know, you just know you're in a port city. But it's a different day because on this day, on this day you notice an easily startled strange man as he's waiting there on the docks. He tells you he's from Gath Heifer. And you wonder where that's at. And he's nervously just kind of waiting there on the docks, and he's perspiring from his forehead and his upper lip, and he's strange. You're, you're wondering, what's going on? His hands are tremoring or trembling with anxiety. His eyes are darting around. It's, it's almost like he just heard from God. And in his hand, he's clutching passenger fare to board a ship. He's going to board a ship to Tarshish. And he's the only one who could tell you about the first three verses. It's in the days of Jonah. The first three verses give us the context of the whole rest of the story. It's Jonah's story. But I just wonder, over the last few days, if it's your story too, my story. Verse 1 in Jonah chapter 1. 
The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. If you want to get a picture in your mind of, of what's going on here, you can take a look at this map, and you'll see where, where Nineveh is, you see where Joppa is, and then you see 2,500 miles away where Tarshish is. Now, in Nineveh, historians tell us that Nineveh was the largest city in the world at that time. That time was 760 B.C. It was the capital city of Assyria, and it was, Assyria was the greatest political empire at that time. And the people of Assyria, they were unmistakable. The people of Assyria were the most violent, prolific human traffickers in the world. Slavery was their forte. And so you might ask, what's so bad about Nineveh, though? I mean, was it really that wicked? The prophet Nahum tells us a little bit about Nineveh in Nahum chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. And if you, if you read this, it, it's sort of halting. It's, it's this statement about what Nineveh is. And it's filled with exclamation points. It's, it's almost like he's out of breath and he just wants to tell you quickly how bad it is over there. He says, Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims. The crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring, the mistress of sorceries, who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. That's Nineveh. But what's with Jonah, anyways? Was he afraid of failure? Most people think that as they read his story. But it was pretty clear he didn't like the Ninevites. And so was he afraid of success, that they would come to the Lord, and the people that he hated would be part of the family of God? Or was he just outside of his comfort zone? He was uncomfortable. And then I, I, I have to ask, what about you? Are you afraid of failure? Or of success? Or are you just uncomfortable with all of this? And if God specifically told you, do this or go there, would you run or try to hide from God? Today we're going to take a look at the first chapter. and We're going to take a, just a, a broad brushstroke, if you will. Not just in the first chapter, but sort of the whole story of Nineveh. I mean, the whole story of Jonah and his plight with Nineveh. And because it's normally sort of a children's story, we're going to look at grown-up lessons from this kid's story of Jonah. And we'll look at six lessons. It's going to go pretty fast, so try to keep up. Number one is this. It's, 
The first lesson is God's word is just as clear to us as it was to Jonah. God's word is just as clear to us as it was to Jonah. Have you ever thought this? I, I have thought it. Maybe you have too. Maybe not. But have you ever thought, I mean, even as Bob lead, led us in prayer, and there was this time he said, God, would you speak to us? And, and then it just went silent. And I don't need to see a show of hands, but how many of you were uncomfortable with that? Sort of, okay, so what am I supposed to, I'm listening to God here? And what does he sound like? And I, I've thought, I wish God would speak as clearly today as he did in the times of the Old Testament. I have thought that before. I have thought, I wish God would be so clear to us today as he did, as he was to Jonah in those times. And then I say something kind of foolish, or I think it. And if he spoke that clear, I would do everything he said. And then I think, on the other hand, if I were to sort of transport my time back to Old Testament days, I wonder if in Old Testament days, you went up to one of these old guys, you know, the bearded prophets, the guys that really heard from God and wrote these things down. I wonder if in ancient Old Testament days you would go up to an old bearded prophet and talk to him, and they would say, I wish God would just write everything down. And I wish he'd just put it in a book. And that he would put it in a book and then so that we can go back and read it over and over and over again. And if he did that, we'd follow everything he'd say. We have this book, the Bible. We call it God's Word. And everything I've ever faced in my life, or will face in my life, is covered by this book. When I was single, I, I thought, how should I live my life? What should my relationships be like? I would think, what about my career in life? What about my major in college? What about my purpose and my meaning in life? What did God give me as gifts? What about my sexuality as an adult single man? And how should I date somebody? It's all covered here. When it was time to get married, How should I treat my spouse? It's here. How should I manage my finances? It's here. Where should I live and serve God? And when I got, God blessed us with kids, how should I be a dad? How do we parent these kids? This book has every single thing you're going to need. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it's a classic scripture. It says, All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be, and then get this and underline this in your Bibles, that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every single thing in your life you can be equipped for, for every good work through the Bible. So the first grown-up lesson, we'll get into this further in the, in the weeks to come, but God's word is as clear to us as it was to Jonah. Second lesson we can take from this 
kid story, these grown-up lessons is number two is open-door opportunities are not always from God. Let's make that very clear. Open-door opportunities are not always from God. You, you picture Jonah. He's anxiously waiting on this dock. He's got his ticket in his hand, and he's ready to board the ship. And if there was a bunch of passengers, and they're, they're getting the ship ready, and they're kind of waiting on the dock and wanting to get on this, this ship for this 2,500-mile journey, and all the passengers are there, and it's sort of like you're, you're sitting there in an in a airline seat, and the guy sitting next to you, you don't know, but then you say, well, why are you going to Tar- Tarshish? What, what's, you know, you're visiting family? Are you there for business? Is it just a pleasure trip? And if you asked Jonah, he'd probably be willing to tell you how God opened the doors for him to sail to Tarshish. He might say something like, yeah, I was just hanging out at home, and the thought came to me, it's time for a vacation. It's time to take a trip out west. And I, I'm not really sure if a boat's going out west, but I'll gather up my money and stick it in my pocket and go down to Port Joppa and see what's going on over there. I'm not even sure if I have enough money for a trip out west, but, well, let's check it out. So he goes to Port Joppa, and hey, sure enough, there was a boat sailing west to Tarshish. God opened the door for that, and he did have enough money. Isn't it a miracle that God wants him to go to Tarshish now? And you say to him, you're standing there, and you say, Joe, that's amazing how God opened the door for you to go to Tarshish. Unless you knew those three first verses. Because Jonah knew. I think this happens to us all the time. I might, I've heard some time ago, but I, I, I remember it very clearly. Talking to someone a little bit after Christmas. And they said, they said, yeah, we overspent on our Christmas gifts. And yeah, that was a pretty expensive ski vacation. But, you know, the kids really wanted that home theater and gaming system, so... And, you know, uh, my husband, he, he's been working overtime, and he's so stressed out, hardly any family time. So it, we thought that that ski vacation at Aspen was the right thing to do. And, yeah, we'll pay off our credit card debt in time. We'll catch up on our rent and our car payments later. And um, we'll catch up on our tithe, too. In fact, we'll just sort of tithe our time by serving a little bit more in the church. But God really opened the door for us for Christmas. Or I've heard way too many times, yeah, I was in love, kind of. And yeah, I, I know you were right there when I said I do. Wasn't that a great reception? But people fall out of love too, don't they? And doesn't God want me to be happy? And he really opened the door in my life when he brought her. She's like my soulmate the second time around. Stories like this sometimes sound like God, unless you know the first three verses. First grown-up lesson is God wants, God's word is just as clear to us as it was to Jonah, and then Open-door opportunities are not always from God. But for Jonah, this is where the story takes off if you look at verse 4. It says in verse 4 in chapter 1, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. And all the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God, little g, just to 
remind you. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, but Jonah had gone below deck where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. The captain went to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up and call on your little G, God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. It's quite a scene, don't you think? I mean, they get on this boat and these seaworthy veteran sailors, they're afraid, they're crying, they're whining, they're praying, throwing all their possessions overboard. And Jonah, in denial, in total avoidance, he goes to the bottom of this ship and he falls into a deep sleep. And then ironically, the captain comes out, wakes him up and says, you better start praying to your God. The third lesson we can take in all this is this. It's hard to call on God when you're on the run. It's hard to call on God when you're on the run. Uh, agree? True or false? You, you can't really call on God when you're running from him. You ever try to pray to God when you aren't walking with him? It, it feels real strange. In Psalm 139, it gives us a, a good idea. In verse 7, it says in Psalm 139, Where can I go from your spirit? And where can I flee from your presence? If I go to the heavens, you're there. And if I make my bed in the depths of the bottom of a boat into a deep sleep, you are there. And if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, and even there your hand will guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. See, you can hide, but you can't run from God. And you could try to play hide and seek with him, but wherever you hide, he knows where you're at. It's, it's sort of like this when you're trying to talk with God and ask him something, but you're running from him at the same time. It's sort of like, I don't know if you ever did this, but I, I remember doing some foolish things as I was a teenager. You're a teenager and you're, you're just sick of the house rules. And I'm afraid of saying this, but because there's some teenagers here. But <laughs> So you could relate. You're a teenager and you're just sick of the house rules and you're sick of having to clean your room on your parents' time and in the way your parents want you to clean your room. You're sick of the chores because you don't get paid for those anyways. You're sick of the curfews. You're sick of the restrictions on your cell phone. You're sick of the restrictions on the TV if your homework's not done. And you're sick of the restrictions on the family car. And so you go to your dad and you tell him off. And you storm out the door. And oh, you forgot. You get back in the house and you say, uh, can I borrow 40 bucks for gas? <laughs> it's the same thing, right? If you're running from God and then you go and ask God for something. We serve a God that can calm the storm, but we also serve the God that can create that storm. And he might not have any interest to calm the storm because the storm is meant to get your attention. Grown-up lessons? There's plenty of them in this story. God's words is just as clear to us as it was to Jonah. And you think that there's open-door opportunities, but they're not always from God. The third is it's hard to call on God when you're on the run. And the fourth grown-up lesson is this. The consequences of our disobedience does not only affect us. The consequences of our disobedience does not only affect us. Verse 7, Jonah chapter 1. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who's responsible for this calamity. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What's your country? And what, from what people are you? So he answered him, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, 
who made the sea and the dry land. And this terrified them, and they asked, Well, what have you done? And they knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea, the sea was getting rougher and rougher. So they asked him, What should we do to make, uh, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? You see, our disobedience in our life is going to affect everyone in the boat. And in families, I think you know this, and if you don't, I think you should start thinking about this. Because parents understand this, I think, as they try to break the destructive patterns of their family of origin. You could just see it in your family. If you just start thinking about mom and dad and uncles and aunts and grandpa and grandma, and it just goes further and further, and you could just sort of plot your whole family tree. They call it a genogram out. And you'll find that, oh, there's great, great, great grandpa. He had problems with alcohol. And hey, so did great grandpa. And grandpa did too. So did my dad. And it just goes, the pattern goes on and on. Maybe it's alcoholism, or maybe it's divorce, or maybe it's abuse, or adultery, or anger, or lying. Maybe it's poor conflict resolution, or promiscuity, or pornography, or favoritism. The reality of all of this is my choices affect the next generation and then the generations to come. And there are times of, in my clear, there are just moments in my clear reflection as I'm praying to God. And I often pray, God, help me to make the right choices according to your word so that I can foster godly character in my children and then my children's children. And you can even go further. And my children's children's children. Because my disobedience is going to affect everyone in the boat. Verse 12. Jonah says, Pick me up and throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. And in verse 13, there's that one word that says, Instead. Number five, the fifth lesson we can take from this is this. When obedience is the last resort, we tend to lose our cargo. When obedience is our last resort, we'll lose a lot of things. In verse 13, it says, Instead, instead of doing what Jonah said to do, instead the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Instead, they did their best. Did you get this? They lost all their cargo, but they did their best. And they could have obeyed God, but instead they tried and tried an alternative plan. Instead is not a good life plan. In verse 14, it says, And then they cried out to the, who? The Lord, capital L, Yahweh. They cried out to, after crying out to their little G gods, they started crying out to the Lord. Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man. For you, capital L, Lord Yahweh, have done as you pleased. These are all grown-up lessons. It's, it's, God's word is clear to us, as clear as it was to those Old Testament days. And even if you think you have an open door and you think it's God, it's not always God. It's hard to call on God when you're on the run. And the consequences of our disobedience affects everyone in the family, and when obedience is your last resort, you tend to lose everything 
And number six, the last lesson we're going to cover today is in these grown-up lessons is surrender comes before salvation. Surrender comes before salvation. Verse 15, as we close out this chapter. And then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We'll take this up next week some more, but I think if you're crying out to God to save you from something, God save me from, uh, from something, save me, I, I, I need to change something in my life, or something needs to change, or God divert the storm in my life, you might need to change your prayer. Because Jonah didn't pray here for the storm to go away. He didn't pray for a safe landing. He didn't pray to get all their cargo back. He didn't pray for peace. He didn't pray for his own health. What he did do is he said, throw me into the sea. And if you have read that chapter carefully, you'll notice that Jonah says at least once, God controls the sea. The sea is his. And so in other words, God or Jonah was saying, throw me into God's hands. I surrender because surrender comes before any salvation here. I think God, before God wants to fix your finances, instead of praying, God, fix my finances, I think before God wants to fix your relationships or your marriage or your kids or any addictions you have, before any of that, God wants you to surrender. Many times, God will let you do what you want. It's your insteads, if you want to call it that. He'll let you row on the best as you can, farther and farther and farther from him, until you realize that you just need to surrender to him. And for some of you, this story of Jonah is a familiar story because you heard it taught on a flannel graph board when you were a kid in a children's classroom. And for others, this story of Jonah is very familiar because this is your story you know that God's word is clear today as it was to Jonah. You know that you've called things open-door opportunities from God, God's will, but they weren't always that way. You have tried to call on God when you're on the run. You know that the consequences of your obedience have affected so many other people in your life. And you know that when obedience is your last resort, you've already lost a bunch of stuff in your life. And you finally come to realize that you need to surrender to God. And for many of you, when you read this book, it's as clear as day for how you should live your life. You don't need to hear God in some special way. You just need to pick this up and start looking into the words of what it says. Because we have this, and it's just as clear, more clear, I would say, today than it was in Jonah's day. Amen? Let's all stand for the benediction.